Hello, book lovers. Welcome to Two Lit Chicks with Julia Bojo. This is the podcast where I speak with authors about the books and writers that have affected them and dig deep into the highs and lows of writing stories for a living. This podcast is for anybody who loves books and considers them to be one of the main relationships in their lives. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 3 of Two Lit Chicks. I'm excited to hear that the writer's strike in America seems to have come to a conclusion. Uh, we don't know the details of the deal yet, but by all reports, they seem to have gotten what they wanted on a number of points. In a world that is getting more expensive by the minute, it's great to see that the writers stood up for themselves to get a living wage. To me, this was an epic battle where we, the human race, had an opportunity to choose humanity over AI, addressing the question, yes, AI can do some things that writers can do, but should it? Now, if they could get on with making a second series of Shrinking, I'd be much obliged. If you haven't watched it, the dialogue is amazing. And let's hope the actors strike ends soon too, with a similar exceptional deal. I'm very interested to see what's going on with a new publishing platform called The Bindery. Basically, it's where book influencers, like EasyCat, can start their own publishing imprints. Then their fans can subscribe to their channel to watch them go through the process of discovering books and publishing them. Because what we all need is another subscription service. Think of it as reality TV for book publishing. Agents submit to the bindery in the normal fashion, and the powers that be at the bindery distribute the manuscripts to the matching influencer. The deal for authors is a $10,000 advance, not bad, and 50% of net sales, minus their agent fees. The influencer gets 25%, and 25% goes to the bindery. We will be watching with interest to see if this works, or if it's just another way to build writers' hopes and then crash them to the ground. Out of interest, a question for all you romance writers out there. When you're writing a scene of a sexual nature, do you always find yourself picturing the person in the world that would most mortify you if they read it? So, for example, I was writing one yesterday and I found myself picturing the nuns at my old Catholic high school reading it and being like, Oh, I wonder what little Julia Bojo's been up to. Holy mother of God. <laughs> anyway, on that note, the title of my new book, formerly known as Jess in Paris, is now, drumroll please, Camera Shy. Available to pre-order now on Amazon, including non-horrifying sex scenes. Today, my honorary chick is David Bickford, a British author and former Undersecretary of State and legal director to the British intelligence agencies MI5 and MI6. Fun fact, also known as North and South by those in the know due to their positions across from each other on the River Thames. David spent his working life diving into the cold murky seas of terrorism, espionage, and organized crime. At the forefront of the battle against international terrorism, he was among the first to predict its onslaught. David is recognized both in the agencies, where he was awarded Companion of the Order of Bath for his work, and in the business he now runs for his groundbreaking solutions to defeat the terrorists and international organized criminals who threaten us. His spy thriller, Katya, is available now, and his second book, The Informer, will be out on December 1st. Get your latest book fix with the two lit chicks. Move on to the um, writing tips episode, uh, yes. the book bite, and then I'll draw that to a close, and then we'll do the quiz. I did not look any at any of the questions and answers. <laughs> <laughs> that really amuses me. You see, <laughs> you I would buy not the have book. made a good intelligence officer, I tell you. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, I think that's probably true on a number of levels. But um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, no. Thank you so much for for joining me today. Um, I, I thought I was reading um, a post. One, an, an interview with you, and it said that you had to send your book Katia to the powers that be at, uh, at uh, MI5 and MI6 so they, they could check that you hadn't accidentally spilled the beans on anything. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> yes, one has to do that. Yeah, quite right. <laughs> and no. did they find anything? No, they didn't. No, no, no. Very happy. So that was good. <laughs> I mean, it's quite extraordinary because when, when I joined them, uh, one of my jobs was actually to set up the... Uh, relations liaison with the um, media mm-hmm. because they hadn't had any before mm. so uh, i sort of became the public face anyway of 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 the agencies um but then my life was very easy then because the media were brilliant they you know they 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 were very pleased to chat and mm. we got on very well very good god can you imagine it now oh well i know Absolutely. But then at least they're talking more. I, I mm. You know, w- w- when I joined, I was the only person who talked to them apart from the director general and C. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, now at least the um, heads talk to them. I'd like to see more chat from, from the agencies to let people know what's going on and mm. how, how these issues are being treated. But there you go. Yeah. Secrecy. It's all about the secrecy, isn't it? Uh, too much. <laughs> yes, too much. Yes. Oh, well, yeah, you've you've chosen thankful thank you for choosing a short story, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought, you know, my God, you've got to clamber through a book. Uh, uh, yeah, and- no, so you chose you chose The Verger, which is a short story by Somerset Mom as the as the book that most influenced your life. Can you tell yes. us what it's about and why you chose that? Yeah, sure. Uh, the Verger is the story of the Verger of St. Peter's, which was a sort of upmarket church in a square in London. And he'd been the Verger looking after the church for many years. Well, there was a change in vicar and the vicar discovered that uh, the Verger couldn't read or write. And he said this was absolutely appalling in this sort of upmarket area and fired him. Well, the the verger was absolutely shattered because he had no other job to go to. And he was also incredibly worried about how he was going to tell his wife about this. So he wandered the streets and suddenly he found he was absolutely dying for a cigarette and he couldn't find a tobacconist. And this sparked something. And he went home to his wife and he told her the awful news. And he said, look, he said, I've had an idea. We've just got a little bit of cash saved. I think I could invest it in a tobacconist shop in this particular area and we might make a go of it. And she agreed and he did. And he made a tremendous success and he ran a string of tobacconists. One day his bank manager asked him in and said, um, do, do you realize that your current account has tens and tens of thousands of pounds in it and you've never invested it? He said, I could invest it for you and make even more money. And the verger looked at me and said, well, that, that's a good idea. So the bank manager <laughs> said, okay, fine. Uh, here's this uh, paper, just read through it and sign it with you. And there was a silence. And the verger looked at him and he said, well, I'm, I'm awfully sorry, but I can't read or write. And the bank manager said, my God, he said, you can't read and write. He said, just think of what you could have been if you could have read and written. And the verger looked at him and he said, yes, 
I'd still be the verger of St. Peter's. <laughs> Which... I did, I did love the story. It was it was really fun, and um, you know, for me, it's it's like Somerset Mom wrote up, woke up one morning and was like, "I'm going to write a story about blessings in disguise." You know, yes, like that. Yeah. that is so right, and I think that that that's what really influenced me because I was around about sixteen when I was introduced to uh, Somerset Mom at school. Uh, doing A-levels and thinking about going into the law. And uh, I'm more practical and academic, and I was sort of wondering whether this would be a good idea or not. And that that story, I mean, really has so many parts to it. I mean, first of all, it's, well, everybody's equal. You know, we, we should mm -hmm. all have the, the same opportunities. You can't be uh, treated badly because you can't read or write or have some other um, disability, as it were. And uh, then the next thing was, well, don't be discouraged by setbacks. You know, you're mm. going into your exams, just crack on. Then, of mm. course, one looks at it and one, one sees, as you've said, blessings in disguise. Opportunities do come in disguise and one really has to sort of watch out for that. And, and if they come, grab them with both hands and I think lastly, because that verger was so determined to, to make a success, I think determination is really one of the keys to success. So those are the sort of lessons one learned as a 16-year-old. Mm. And they really go all the way through life. I mean, certainly when I was in the agencies, um, th those lessons were all absolutely essential to know and to no, follow. Definitely. I mean, for me, I was um, looking at it. It made me think of this idea of managers looking at resumes, and you know, looking at the, what, what's written on the resume instead of looking at the person. And I've always been, you know, when when looking at people to hire, you know, I've always been the kind of person who was like, well, they might not have the skills that I need them to have, but I, they've got the raw material. You know, you could see in them that they had something special. And um it's a it's a you know a skill obviously that the that the uh vicar did not have at the uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And they, they missed the fact that he'd been administering this Yeah, exactly. For years, it's like perfectly successful. It's so so blind. Yeah. But No, um... that's true. That that's true. I I mean when I hired lawyers in, in, in the agencies, that's exactly what I looked for. I mean, what one of them was was, was a, a a girl who who she was very young, and um, she'd actually been out in the China Seas on a shrimp boat. Hmm. I thought, yeah, absolutely, you're you're absolutely the right person. Yeah, <laughs> you can survive that. Success. Yeah, come <laughs> in, come in. <laughs> right, right. Yes. So you, when I asked you the authors that um, have affected your writing, you said that Somerset Mom is is top of the list, and because of character, and I could see that in the writing. That's like he goes straight into um, telling these details about the verger that makes you really understand what kind of person he is. The fact that he irons all of his own, you know, his outfits for um, being a verger. I can't remember what they're called. Yes. Um, his vestments, I guess. Yes. Um, and, and he has all of his old ones that had worn through, like wrapped in brown paper. So, you know, you, you got a real sense of what kind of person he was just through the things that he did. And I think that as writers, that's such an important, you know, th that it's that showing versus telling, you know, showing what a character is like rather than, than just saying, oh, they were like this and that, you know. Yeah, that, I, I, yes, I, I, 
I mean, I'm nowhere near as advanced as you on writing, but yes, I mean, I, 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 I reading Somerset Maugham, that's a huge lesson. And I, I find that he can actually not only describe a character, but a whole life in just a sentence or two. Mm. Um, I, I, I was reading um, another short story of his, which was the, the voice of the turtle. Mm-hmm. And his very last line says, she was hateful, of course, but she was irresistible. I love well, that. <laughs> you, you don't need. That could have been the first line of the story and he didn't need to write anything else. Yeah, that, I mean, that would be an amazing first line of a story, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> you just sort of sit back and just <laughs> think about this woman. <laughs> you know exactly who she is. Oh, uh, in fact, to all the writers listening out there, I think you should take that as a, as a writing prompt. Start your next story with, she was hateful, of course, but she was irresistible. Think, <laughs> absolutely uh, brilliant. See where that goes. But you said me but, some other quotes as well yeah sure uh, just e- e- evening up on, on on in terms of the sexes that mm-hmm. the, the, there was another absolutely brilliant line in the ant and the grasshopper where again you you get a complete picture in in uh two sentences he had high spirits an unfailing gaiety an incredible charm I never lent him fifty pounds without feeling I was in his debt. I Love mean, that. <laughs> it's Love just that. superb. Yeah, and I mean, you just get a world of character just from that one line. It really, I mean, that is that's beautiful writing. It is. It's wonderful, isn't it? I, mm. I know. But I'm sort of very jealous of it. Really. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there slowly but surely, you know. Yeah. But it's you know, it's it's writing is a muscle, you know, and you've got to keep working at it and and trying and learning and and uh, becoming better. You know, I was um I was look on looking on Facebook the other day, and another author named Kathy Bramley. She was saying that before she starts every book, she reads a book on craft. Right. Like a new yes. book on craft. And yes. I thought, oh, you know, that's a really good idea because I have got like every, every book on craft. Yes, yes. <laughs> and um, I should actually read them. And the idea of, you know, just trying to learn something new before starting each book, I think that that's a really, a really good idea for writers. Yeah, um, absolutely. I have two, two elements to that. One, one mm. I'm, I'm looking at my books here on the shelf. Hmm. Uh, solutions for writers and yes. <laughs> the usual and then and then I'm very lucky because I've got my wife Carrie who hmm. who digs me out of uh, digs me out of trouble and, and gives me ideas which is great <laughs> yeah you know partners can be useful for that <laughs> oh absolutely yeah yeah vital actually vital uh, so um Somerset Maugham yes yeah. Yeah, you had you had one other quote that you wanted to share. Um, yeah, sure. It, it, again, the, the, this came from the facts of life, um, and the, this is just one line towards the end of the story between a father who's talking about his son and his and the father's friend, and the friend says, "It's my belief your boy's been born lucky, and in the long run, that's better than to be born clever or rich." Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Isn't that so true? (laughs) It's so true. So true. But then what is luck, you know? (laughs) Oh, sure, sure. Luck is determination, as you said earlier, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, luck is opportunity and you've got to spot it, I think. I think you make your own luck in the end. 100%. 100%. Yeah. 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 
Um, so another author that you uh, yes. pointed as somebody that you admired was Mickey Spillane. And yes. uh, you said that for description, uh, he's he's your man. So and the, the first quote that you said, I thought was absolutely beautiful. Uh, do you want to do you want to read that one out? Yes, sure. Uh, Mickey Spillane, my, my godfather, because um, I used to holiday with various relatives because my parents lived abroad. Mm -hmm. My godfather introduced me, he was a doctor, he introduced me to Mickey Spillane when I was about 14. He said, it's time you read Mickey Spillane. <laughs> <laughs> There comes a time in every young man's life, yeah. <laughs> Actually, just going back on that point a second, I was listening to you talk on, um, I think it was your your social media, and you were talking about how your parents lived in Brazil, and you were going out, you were at boarding school, and you had to go out to see them, and they put you in like an, in an old World War II bomber yes. or something like that. What yes. was that like? I mean, gosh, you didn't have any uh, in-flight entertainment there. No, absolutely. It used to take, well, nearly sort of two days. Um, and when I left, when I left school, uh, to make this first journey, I was about seven. I was incredibly exciting, as you can imagine. But, um, my matron put a, a brown label on my jacket. <laughs> Please said, take care of this bear. <laughs> yes, it said David Bickford, Natal, Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was wonderful. Well, I didn't at the time. I do now. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, but that that was incredible. I mean, it was a converted bomber the first the first journey, and it took about two days to land at Lisbon, and then you'd go on to Dakar in in West Africa, and you'd climb out of that plane, and the first thing one one got was that fantastic hit of humidity. You know, oh, absolutely amazing. There was just... eight R. I'm Journey, picturing in um, Indiana mm. Jones, you know, like when they show the pictures of the of the maps with the line showing where the airplane is flying. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, well, in, in, in those days, when actually the, the captain used to come down the plane. And of course, being a, a seven-year-old, I was taken up to the cockpit and all the rest yeah. of it, which was wonderful. And I was given a flight map. Mm. And it was very good for my maths, which incidentally I took nine times at A level before I got <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I should have confessed that, but still. Mm. Well, uh, you know, you got there in the end. Determination. determination. That's our theme. That's our theme. <laughs> uh, uh, right. Absolutely. Yes. Mm. Well, sorry. Back so, to Mickey Spillane. Yeah. Yes, of course. Right. Um, right. It was one of those nights when the sky came down and wrapped itself around the world. The rain clawed at the windows of the bar like an angry cat and tried to sneak in every time some drunk lurched in the door. That's wow. amazing. Can you can you... really, it, it's like description you can feel. It is, isn't it? You can smell yeah. that bar. Mm. Mm. Uh, and, you know, a, a downtown New York bar Mm. Can you can you better that description? No. I think I've been in that bar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, so true. Yes, it, one um. does remember them. Um, so, Mickey Spillane, I I think again he describes this is in the fifties and he he describes one of the back streets in downtown New York, and the street was one of those shabby blocks a few years away from condemnation. The sidewalks were littered with ancient baby buggies, a horde of kids playing in the garbage on the sidewalks, and people on the stoops 
who didn't give a damn what the kids did so long as they could yap and slop beer. Gosh. Yeah. That's gritty. Really good. Really good. But, you know, it's, I mean, it's almost worth sitting down with your Mickey Spillane hat on and just sitting down and just describing things, that just writing it out, just to practice that muscle, as we've said, you know. It's, um, it's definitely... That's a, really good advice. Yes. Yeah. Actually, yeah. that is really good advice. Oh, well, thank I, you. I, I surprise myself sometimes. No, no, no. Because I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Very yeah. well worth worth doing. And, and Morm, of course. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and the last one you chose um, was for Cadence. And it's actually somebody I'd never heard of before, James Elroy Flecker. Yes. Um, so tell me why, why you chose him for, uh, for Cadence. Uh, Flecker was very interesting. He he died when he was about twenty nine of of TB, and he travelled travelled a lot in the uh, Middle East, and his poetry is is full of cadence, as you say, mm. and I I try and write with some sort of rhythm, particularly with with conversation dialogue. But mm. that that I I seem to see that that begins to get a. a, a a um, sort of rhythm to dialogue between two people. And this quote is, it was so old a ship, who knows, who knows, and yet so beautiful, I watched in vain to see the mast burst open with a rose and the whole deck put on its leaves again. Mm. That, that, nice. that's, that is wonderful. You, you, mm. Apart from anything else, of course, the visual picture is is stunning. But I found that that sort of rhythm or cadence, as you much better put it, um, is 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 very very alluring, evocative. Yeah, and I think it's always funny, you know, when I ask each author this question, the other authors that speak to them, because I I, I never get the same answer twice. But it goes to show how incredibly subjective reading is and whatnot. But anyway. That's yeah. by the by. <laughs> no, so, no, no, but so true. Yes. Yeah. Um, so tell me, what made you decide to go from working for the agencies to becoming a writer? Is it something that you've wanted to do from when you were young or something you developed later in life? Yes, it was developed later in life. So I think I'd, I'd, I'd been really lucky and had a very adventurous life. Hmm. I mean, it started off, as I said, you know, visiting the parents in, in South America, India, Africa. Mm. Uh, then when I uh, became a lawyer, I went to the Caribbean for two years, had two wonderful years there, came back to the Foreign Office, which was fascinating, dealing with international affairs, went to Berlin during the Cold War for three years, which again was was well, in a sense, actually, it was a bit like Alice in Wonderland. But it, well, I, I, I read something about you sent your wife <laughs> with your son for a sleepover to East Germany. Was that a... Ah, yes, yes. I'm not sure she's ever forgiven me for that either. <laughs> you know what? High up there, high up there on the, you know, hmm. Yeah, so do you want yeah. to tell, tell us that story? That's quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Well, um, we, we were testing out uh, how vigilant the East Germans would be if we sent someone across with a passenger uh, and they came back by themselves and then went back again into the east to uh, and brought back a passenger mm. well at that time um 
the Berlin Wall was in place across uh, Berlin, and passage across that wall was very strictly controlled. It was controlled by guards who were armed. I mean, people were still being shot Hmm. crossing from East Berlin to to West Berlin at that time. So um, we sent Carrie off with uh, my son, PJ, Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, she went across with him and dropped him off at um, the place where he was staying the night with a friend of his. And she came back uh, and crossed a checkpoint, Charlie, which was the crossing point. Mm. And she was stopped by the East German guards at the at the border. And she was held there for about 20 minutes. And they surrounded a car with, with guns and they bang on the window to try and get you to talk. And the, 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 um, one was not allowed to talk to East German guards as part of the sort of uh, regime of, of Berlin at that time. So she had to sit there while this was going on. Anyway, eventually they let her go. Well, the next day she crossed over and brought PJ back and it was at night. Mm. And this time they held her for about an hour. Uh, with the searchlights shining on her, and that that was quite scary. But she she's she's tough, so she sort of held on, and eventually they let her go. Anyway, mm. she was steaming mad by this time. Came to <laughs> came to my office. <laughs> a word, a word, David. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless her. Well, you're still together. <laughs> yeah, we're still together. Yeah, and she's still helping me writing. So. <laughs> kind of like amazes me more than anything like it's hard enough to organize a sleepover like just now in normal life doing it with somebody in east germany how do you even organize hey i'm just gonna organize a sleepover with my friend over in east germany how did he make friends in east germany it's well, the, uh yes sure the, the the british embassy um was was over there uh, uh it was split the british embassy was for for east germany and hmm. east berlin uh, well, East Germany, but the um, British military government was still an occupying force. Can you imagine that? In uh, 1980, 1979 to 83, we were there. Mm. Still an occupying force left over from World War II. Mm. Uh, and it was the Brits, the Americans, the French and the Russians who were actually responsible for for Berlin. Mm. So that that's how he was able to get across to to yeah. the um, embassy. So he wasn't staying with an East German friend. Right, got it. <laughs> that would have been even better, actually. Hey, even better. <laughs> Tell me everything. <laughs> um, so back to your back to your writing journey. Yes. So uh, after Berlin, I came back to the Foreign Office, and then um, I was asked to uh, join MI5 and MI6 as their legal director. And it was at a time when we were changing really from counter-espionage to counter-terrorism and there needed to be a change in attitude, which was a very exciting time to be there as a lawyer, I must say. Mm. Uh, the sort of human rights aspects were, were, were bubbling, the legal aspects were bubbling, one had to put MI5 and 6 on a legal footing, one had to... Uh, create um, a regime to respect the rights of everybody, including terrorists, and, mm. and uh, fascinating time. Anyway, after that, I left to go to America, and I spent a year 
in in Cleveland. I was doing, I was teaching international law and human rights on terrorism to a university there, Cleveland University in Case Western, which actually was terrifying because I had to teach law students who knew some law. But <laughs> 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 sort of tends to forget the gritty nitty of law. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so after that, um, I, I, I traveled the world advising um, offshores on countering terrorism money laundering. Mm-hmm. So after that long journey, sorry about all that. No, no, go. It's, it uh, all leads up to a point. <laughs> it all leads up to a point. My granddaughter actually asked me to come and talk about um, the agencies uh, because they'd been talking about James Bond. Mm. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll come down to the, the school and talk about that. And I was looking, it was her, she, her class and, and year of girls were there. And I was looking at them and talking about the women in MI5 and 6 who, who are just extraordinary. I mean, they're, you know, everybody's equal there, but, but the women are extraordinary, I have to say. Very, I mean, courageous and bright. And I suddenly thought, yes, here's the world that I want to write about. It's the world of Katya. And mm. um, that's how it all came about. Mm. That's interesting. So the uh, so the idea kind of just came to you in a thunderbolt, and then you were away. Yes, that that's right. Yes, that's how it happened to me too. I mean, it's it's mm. sometimes that's that's just what you need to get you started. Yeah. So um, that's interesting. So you had the same experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, I was, um, I was, I kind of knew I wanted to get back into writing again because I, I was a photographer for many years. Yes. And, um, so I was telling a friend that I wanted to write romance novels about photographers. And she yes. was like, Oh, you want to be the Jilly Cooper of photography? And like in that second, the title, the plot, everything came to me. And, and, um, yeah, I got, I got started from there. But I think that happens to a lot of, a lot of authors, you know, you know, you want to write, but you're not sure what you want to write. And it's, it is a huge learning curve as well. Yeah, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, uh, incredibly exciting. (laughs) It's another adventure. It, It truly is. Um, so did you did you take any courses in writing? Or did you just sit down and just start learning? No, I'm ashamed to say I thought well, I'm going to just plunge in here. It's going to be... <laughs> Writing's so know. easy. I'll just do it. Yeah, I'll just do it. <laughs> just do it. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing I had to get over, of course, was the fact that having been a lawyer, hmm. you know, someone's opinions could be pretty dry. So... <laughs> well, I had a lot of help there from, uh, you know, Carrie, who said, yeah, come on, you know, you're in the trees here. This plot's got so detailed, nobody will understand it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that got drawn back. Well, but no, a- it happens. Yeah, I mean, I remember I was writing a scene that was very similar to something that had happened to me at we- a wedding, and I showed it to my husband, and he was like, "It's not working. The scene isn't working at all." Mm. You know, and I just scrapped it and, and went back to square one. But yeah, sometimes when you stick too close to to life, uh, it takes it takes the juice out of it. <laughs> yeah, that I, I, so 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 right for, as far as I'm concerned, certainly. And um, I could not write about people I knew, or I can't mm. write about people I know. I, I find that very constricting to even think about it because one's well, I don't know, but for me, my characters sort of tend they they just develop. 
And if you have someone in mind, I think from, from my perspective, my characters can't develop. They seem to be, they would be constricted. Mm. And I find it just much more fun not to think of any particular person, but just to drive into a character and mm. try and follow Somerset Maugham. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, by, by the same token, I feel like every character I write has a small piece of me in them. You know, because you've got to you've got to have some sort of starting point, I think, uh, for the, even the villains, even the villains, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. really? <laughs> <laughs> do you have Do you have half a billion stashed somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> now that's something that I'm not allowed to tell you. <laughs> oh right! Oh, damn it. <laughs> So, so what's what is the highest point of your writing career been so far? Well, I, I, I don't know. I love sailing, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I, I really find writing a bit like sailing. I mean, you're zinging along one minute with mm. a really good breeze, yeah, uh, and then suddenly, of course, that breeze dies away, and you're muddling along trying to get things going, mm. uh, frustrating, mm -hmm. and. Uh, then, of course, along comes the squall and you're sort of try, trying desperately to keep things in place and going down avenues of, of desperation uh, to sort of try and get oneself out of problems. And yeah. then suddenly that breeze comes back again and, and you're back on an even course sort of flying along. Mm. And I find, I find all of that a high point. Mm. Uh, I find that exciting, and I keep using the word adventurous um, mm. and and really liberating. No doubt about that at all. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I find that when I hit those bits where the wind goes away, that's a really good analogy, by the way. Um, I, I find those bits to be when my subconscious takes over. Like there's when when I come to a stop, it's because there's a problem. I don't know what it is, but I need to keep pushing forward and just keep writing while my subconscious kind of figures out what's going on. And then you wake up one day and you go, ah, oh, of course, it's because I've got to kill off blah, 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 or, you know, yeah. or whatever, you know. But, no, that, um, that is sing, rings, you know, loads of bells. Gosh, yes. Mm. I, I, you know, I say to myself, it's no good sort of sitting here thinking you can't do it. You, you crack on and, and um, go through it and it'll come out the other side. It's just mm. like sailing, just like yeah. sailing. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, it can not be wonderful at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Depends. Depends on the situation. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and, and the lowest point of your writing career, is there a time where you found it hard? Oh, my gosh, yes. It's when my editor disses all my grammar. <laughs> 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 yeah, editors oh. are like that. <laughs> oh, she's absolutely brilliant, uh, Sue Paulson. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when she said to me, no, 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 you've really got to get this plu perfect right out of Russell. Plu perfect, what? <laughs> plu perfect. <laughs> I remember learning about that in school at some point. But <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. It's a sort of instantly forgettable sort of English language thing, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, dear. I know. Sorry. Yes. No, it can be. I, I think. Yeah. When the, when your editor is. Or your beta readers or whatnot, when their comments come back, you know, the first time, I think that's always a bit of a uh, kind of moment, like, because you know, there's work to be done. And annoyingly, they're always 
blooming right as well. Oh, aren't they just? Yes, yeah. I know. I know. And that, that I, it, it, it took me two or three chapters actually before I sort of got my head wrapped right, right, absolutely around that. And then one gets into that sort of great relationship where mm. you, you know, and, and she knows she can say anything. And, mm. and one knows, yes, great. This, this, this is right. I need to wrap my mind, my mind around that and get yeah. cracking. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So tell us about Katya. Tell us, tell us about what the book's about. Yes, Katya's a Russian intelligence agent who's the chief operations officer for the G8 intelligence agency. It's set at the time when um, Russia, America, and Britain were all part of the G8, and I imagined uh, an intelligence agency where all of them were cooperating to fight, uh, you know, terrorism, international terrorism and international organized crime, which is a major threat. Mm. Katya's task is to find a man called Cartwright, who was Gaddafi's personal money launderer. And after Gaddafi was killed, Cartwright disappeared with half a billion of Gaddafi's personal fortune, half a billion dollars. Cartwright is, is, is really a depraved character without any doubt whatsoever. And Catcher's job is to find him and find the money. Well, it's not just Cartwright that's the problem. He's surrounded by terrorists who are his bodyguards. So Catcher has to get through the terrorists hmm. in order to try and find Cartwright. And she does this. She goes through the desert out to the Caribbean in offshore centers. And she herself is conflicted. She's the daughter of a KGB colonel who was violent uh, and, and really tyrannical, who was determined to make her his own image and get her into the KGB at that time. Her mother, on the other hand, is a uh, ballerina. She's a prima ballerina with the Bolshoi Ballet. And her life getting away from her husband is one of glamour with the Moscow elite. Mm. So Katya's torn between the two. Mm. She's actually doing the job that her father put her into. But on the other hand, she really wants to have the glamour Mm. of the life of her mother that immediately creates a conflict because is Mm. she going to go for the half billion dollars Mm. or is she actually going to find Cartwright and turn him in and get the half billion dollars back for the Libyan government? I think when, um, so I haven't finished it yet, so don't ruin anything for me, but um, I I assume she survives because there's another book coming out soon. (laughs) (laughs) She survives. Yeah. There's also, needless to say, a, a, a love interest in that with her um, director general who, who, who operates in this scenario uh, with her. And the question there is, 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 is are, are they actually going to fall in love? Mm. Uh, and if so, is this another problem for her in terms of will she go for him or will she go for the money or can she go for both? 
Mm-hmm. Lots of lots of dilemmas for her, and I think it's always good putting a romance into. I mean, I'm always for romance. So. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I love I love putting a bit of a romantic uh, storyline in there. But but when you're reading it, you you can't help but thinking to yourself, you know, knowing your background, like is this how it is this how it really works? Is this you know how how this kind of thing goes down? Because you know, in the in the first uh, few chapters, she and her operatives go into the desert, uh, pretending to be eco warriors. And uh, they've they've been given this like backstory for a company called Our Desert, and they're going in going, yeah, that doesn't really make sense because it's not Our Desert. And they're like, yeah, the, the guys, the suits, they just came up with that. We just have to run with it. <laughs> yeah, and that, to me, there actually was a real ring of truth to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I have, to, I have to say, because MI five and six actually passed the book, none of it. <laughs> All of it is imagination, none of it's true. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Needless to say, one does borrow on experience. I think that's pretty fair to say. You can take the spirit, the spirit of it. Of course, yes, yes. Shrewd of you, yes. Yeah, yeah, no. But yeah, makes us me me wonder if we're we're all screwed, but anyway. Well, as long as I made you think of that, that that's that cheers me up no end. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, so one thing I've started doing is I've started asking uh, the writers to finish this sentence, which is, "I love being a writer, but dot dot dot." Oh yes. <laughs> oh, oh yes. I think the coffee and the comfort food and those donuts. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> It's not good for your waistline. Is that what you're saying here? It's absolute hell. (laughs) (laughs) But the writing makes up for it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a very sedentary job. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But at least you've you've got Carrie around to uh, to keep bringing you the donuts. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And she doesn't mind the weight putting on, which is nice. Um, and uh, and finally, I, I also would like to know something that has delighted you recently. Oh, right. Yes. We took, Carrie and I took our 13-year-old grandchildren um, to the Gorilla Circus Trapeze in Regent's Park in London. Wonderful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the, she, while there, she was taught um, how to fly through the air on, 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 on a trapeze. Oh, Wow which is quite 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 amazing really and the, the the trainers were superb and really after about two hours she was flying through her trapeze leaving it going through the air and being caught by a catcher on another trapeze wow and i looked at that and i thought yeah that's fearless i mean yeah. that's youth for a start yeah yeah but you know that's inspirational for any thriller writer. I have to yeah, say. I can imagine. Thri- very thrilling. And what was the name of the company? I'll put that, a link. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's called the Gorilla Circus Trapeze, and well worth any kid who wants to learn tra- to trapeze because they they were magnificent. Their, their, their trainers were superb, and the catcher was brilliant. Of course, you know. Yeah, well, <laughs> didn't drop her once. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, that sounds really great because, you know, I'm always looking for new things to do with the kids. And um, oh, I mean, when, you, yes. when you think about like what was available to us when we were little, uh, of like <laughs> clubs we could go to, I mean, there was nothing like what kids 
can get these days. It's... No, we had the scouts and the guides. Well, I mean, yeah. you're, you're much, I mean, you'd have had a lot more than that. But when I was wandering around, it was the, the scouts. Well, the scouts, yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, you know, my sister was in the guides. So, yeah, yes. well, wasn't yeah. that much more Great in the fun. 70s either. You know, I think there was that and then gymnastics or something. But, yes, um, sure, sure. But, but today yeah. they are lucky, aren't they? Gosh. Oh. You know. And also the, I mean, actually having having the internet and Google, what what fun it would have been to go to school with Google. Oh my gosh! Oh you know. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I was in university. I remember it was my senior year when the teacher in one of my classes was like, "Today I'm going to introduce you to this new thing called the internet." <laughs> And it was like, wow, what is this crazy thing? You know, and he gave us a list of questions we had to look up, like, what's the population of Guatemala and and stuff like that. And uh, and then it kind of went from there. But I imagine in the agency, you probably had access to the Internet before the rest of the world. Is that true? We, had it pretty, we, we did have it pretty, pretty early on, actually. Yes, yeah. converting from uh, files to um, paper. Yeah, <laughs> the people who 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 looked after the files were absolutely incredible. They had they had these incredible memories, um, which mm. I would love to have had. So yes, so moving moving to um, you know computer storage and all the rest of it was was quite an interesting effort actually, but yeah. very well done. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it sounds like you've got the, the, I can hear the sirens in the background. They're coming for you now. They're like, yeah. what are you talking about on that podcast? <laughs> yes. Well, there you are. You see, <laughs> been talking about the files in MI5 and 6. Yes, this isn't ah. good. <laughs> um, but anyway, yes. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've so enjoyed our chat. And, um, and yeah, listeners come back on Wednesday when I'm going to be talking with David about his top writing advice. Well, that's really kind of you. Thanks so much. It's been a, a real pleasure, really great fun, Julia. Thank you. Well, that was an absolutely fascinating chat with David. And if you want more great behind-the-scenes info into the world of spying, then check out my quiz with David on Friday. There are some real quirkers in there. Um, join me in two weeks' time for my talk with Beth O'Leary, whose latest book, The Wake-Up Call, came out last week. Also, if you think you've got a good quiz idea in you, reach out to me on social media or through my website and pitch me. I'm always looking for good quizzes for the podcast. And if you are a budding podcaster, I highly recommend the producer of Two Lit Chicks, Jeremy Chapman from Your Voice Here. If you contact him with the code TLCLOVE, then he'll give you a free 30-minute consultation to help get you started. <laughs> Um, that's it for today. Please remember to share, subscribe, review us so that other listeners can find Two Lit Chicks. Tune in Wednesday for more writing advice from David Bickford. Listeners, I love ya. Get your latest